What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Walk-Ons Podcast. Yes, we are back. It is Friday, September 2nd, and this is one of the best days ever. College football is so back. Gus Johnson is already in midseason form. Purdue-Penn State was awesome last night. We got the backyard brawl. Uh, West Virginia pit last night was amazing, Andrew, and it's one of those times of year where guys like you and me, I mean, we're in heaven and our girlfriends and wives are in hell. It's just what the way it's going to be for the next four months. So sorry, sweetheart. Yeah, no, and what a great introduction. You know, we take a little uh, three-month hiatus, and the first thing we're talking about is sending our girlfriends and wives to hell. What a start. Um, yeah, like you said, college When you're married, you'll know, Andrew. I promise. Football is back. Those were two great games last night. Not necessarily all-time classics by any means. They weren't, you know, ranked matchups outside of Pittsburgh, but just a nice, refreshing way to get the season started. And, hey, I'm just excited to, you know, go all in on my UNC Tar Heels going 12-0, and even though they're definitely going to go 6-7. and and lose to a really bad Sunbelt team in whatever bowl game they get to. I'm pumped. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, that's the beauty of any, any beginning to the season is that that hope among a lot of fan bases, including maybe North Carolina, which look, they got a W they're one and O, but uh, the way that defense played against Florida and uh, better not continue doing that because you're going to be in big, big trouble. Uh, but yeah, look, I think obviously putting it against week zero last week, one of the great greatest things ever, just because it's football, but I mean, those are some bad, bad matchups. So literally just getting two power five team, two games, two power five teams, you got Penn State, Purdue, you got Pitt, West Virginia, that was more than enough. And obviously those games ended up being great. Sure, they're not necessarily as good as what we're going to get this weekend, and we'll get into that, Andrew, but look, that, that's a hell of a way to start. A lot of fireworks, close games, a lot of just the crowds going wild. I mean, it's football is back and I could not be more happy. Exactly. Yeah. No. And uh, like you mentioned, you know, uh, UNC put up a, a defensive stalwart game last week against a team that's not only an FCS, <laughs> but was missing 20 players because of eligibility issues. Oh, yeah. So, that little thing. That up. But hey, like you said, college football, it's back. And now we have football every weekend for the rest of this year for the next you know, time being until February. So it's, it's just, you know, it's a beautiful time to be alive. That's all I got to say. Uh, feels good. It really feels good. Fall is in the air. Football is in front of our faces all day, every day. And yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the best times of the year, especially if you're a sports fan. But look, we talked about the games yesterday, you know, close games, but not necessarily looking at the, the playoff picture or anything like of that nature. So let's look ahead to some games that actually are going to make make some some differences here as we look ahead to December and January. Uh, let's start with Oregon, Georgia. So Georgia, that, that's a neutral site game in Atlanta. So neutral site, quote unquote, but Georgia's assist 16 and a half point favorite. Obviously the defending national champions lost a ton of talent in the draft, but you know, as the SEC team does, they do not re they reload, right? They don't, they don't rebuild, they reload and they're going to be great again. Oregon, of course, the new, you got the quarterback transfer, Bo Nix, who knows what you're going to get from him, but this is this has bloodbath written all over it to me, Andrew. What about you? Yeah, no, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, we have two really high profile. I mean, we have three high profile ranked matchups this week, but the two prominent ones, Oregon versus Georgia, Notre Dame versus Ohio State. I think both of those are going to be hard to watch. I mean, we'll, we'll watch. We'll tune in. It's the first week of college football. But I mean, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Ohio State's a 16 point favorite and it's a top five matchup. When have you ever seen a line like that for the first week of the season two? We don't, we don't even have anything to go off of. Um, and it opened at 17. It was even worse. And yeah. some people, some folks have started to bet it down. You know, I think that one could get ugly. And I, I think Oregon with a new coach, I mean, they're a big brand, but the Pac-12 has clearly kind of fallen behind the wayside, especially in comparison to the SEC. And I know Georgia reigning national champion lost a lot of talent, but I think that, like you said, they just reload and they reload and they reload at these positions that, you know, they're just going to out, they're going to bring much more physicality to the game. And I think Oregon has seen it all in their Pac-12 slate. So, like you said, it's in Atlanta. It's technically a neutral site, but it's really a Georgia home game. I think that one has the potential to be a really kind of ugly game, kind of in the vein of like when Alabama would stomp on Miami or USC to start the season. You know, uh, Oregon fans will have hopium until about two minutes into the first quarter when they're down 14 nothing, And they're going to be like, oh, no, what have we done? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's the story with most Pac-12 teams and especially Oregon, right, is, you know, flashy. They've always got some good recruits. They've always got some hype going into the season. They're always going to look good because Phil Knight, you know, Nike, he's going to take care of those boys. But uh, they just it, it's never more prevalent than it is when you watch the defensive side of the ball. When a Pac-12 team is going up against the SEC and you got a Pac-12 Pac defense trying to withstand 
it's uh, it's usually a recipe for disaster. I think we're going to get more of the same. Um, let's move on. We've got so let's see. Let's we you mentioned Notre Dame, Ohio State. Let's just get into it, right? I once again, um, this looks bad. <laughs> this looks bad on paper for me. Uh, I would take this thing at seventeen. It's it's obviously moved to 16, 16 and a half, depending on where you're betting. Um, look, Notre Dame, they, they've had, it's been an interesting summer for them, right? You got Marcus Freeman coming in. He's got all the hype. He's got a top three recruiting class. That's very exciting. Returning a bunch of starters on the defensive side, but I mean, you've basically got a new quarterback, a new system. Uh, yes. Tommy Rees is coming back as the offensive coordinator, but uh, I don't see any way they stay within 20 to 28. Uh, they call it 20 to 25 of Ohio State in Columbus. Am I crazy? Or is that, does that resonate with you there, Andrew? You, you, I mentioned at the top, I think it has potential for bloodbath, like you mentioned. <laughs> I, I think the one thing, though, that will, will be interesting to see, just because we haven't seen it yet, we can't really quantify it within like what we've seen before. But, you know, Marcus Freeman, new head coach, is he kind of the difference maker potentially? You know, Brian Kelly was there for years and years and years, and it felt like they were always in the conversation and they were right on the precipice of being in the same league as these teams like Ohio State, Alabama, Georgia. When they would play them, though, they'd, you know, they'd get their asses handed to them. And so it was like they couldn't just quite get over that hump of being right in that same tier. And I wonder if maybe, you know, a new perspective on the team, you know, someone who's younger, brings some more energy. The players seem to really respond well to him, especially when Brian Kelly had kind of his notorious exit. You know, that's the only thing I could see maybe this not being taken into account is just his presence and kind of just like, in, you know, a new set of hands running the team in uh, South Bend. So um, that's the only thing. Otherwise, though, I do think Ohio State, it's in Columbus. They're returning a bunch of players from their team last year that were right on the precipice of being a college football playoff team. Um, you know, if you just look at it on paper, they should be the clear favorite, and they are. So. Yeah, and look, going back to Marcus Freeman, the guy walks the walk, I'll, I'll, and he talks the talk. I give him a lot of credit. He's he's handled himself very, very well. He looks like he is, you know, sort of poised to at least continue what Notre Dame has seen in terms of success over the last ten years or so. But you know, they are national championship contender. I'm not sure. We're not really sure what we're going to get. But you know, look, he's certainly not as weird as Brian Kelly is. So that there's a step up there. Um, I don't know if that's going to translate on the field. Certainly, maybe not this weekend in Columbus. But I'm I'm very interested to see how they how Notre Dame comes out and performs on a big stage, week one on the road. Um, I don't think it's going to play out well for them, but I would be very very intrigued if they somehow keep this game close, even if they lose. Um, I, I think that's that's kind of a even a, a close loss is a win for Marcus Freeman, in my opinion. Uh, so let's move over to another good one. Utah, number seven against Florida, unranked, but another new regime. Um, interesting what you might get with Florida. Utah, look, they're established. They came out of kind of nowhere last year. Obviously, they had Charlie Brewer who started the season, and he absolutely tanked it. And they, they handed over to Cam Rising with one of the best flows in all of college football. And, I mean, that's an interesting, interesting team. What do you, what are you thinking here in Gainesville? Do you think Utah has, look, okay. Utah is a two and a half point favorite on the road in Gainesville. Do you buy that? Or do you think Florida takes it to them? You know, the thing with, with Florida, that's just tough. Obviously playing at the swamp is unlike anything the Utah players will have ever really experienced unless they happen to be from Florida. Um, you know, they have a new coach. And so that's there's no players at Utah from Florida. Come uh, on. I'm sure there's a couple <laughs> of guys. That Maybe. There's guys from Florida, pretty much every school yeah, in the country. Utah's not their roster isn't just the best players from Utah. I mean, you wouldn't. Sure, it is. Based off <laughs> performance, come on now. Um, no, I, I think with, with Florida, you know, they they've lost some of that luster they had in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And even though they're an SEC team that's got a lot of history, they really haven't been the same competitive team that we've experienced or we're used to in the Tebow years. So it's more like this, like we kind of mentioned, the Pac-12 going to the SEC that really makes you feel like Utah might be stepping into, you know, kind of a uh, tricky situation. But I, I think we got to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're ranked number seven for a reason. There are a lot of people's dark horse playoff picks. And I, I think, you know, if, if they can't handle this test early, then that says a lot about them. So I'm going to ride with the Utes. I, I think they're going to be a fun team to watch this year. And I think they might be the Pac-12's best bet at getting a team into the college football playoff. 
Yeah, well, it certainly is one of the interesting things about these these week one, week zero matchups, right, Andrew, is, look, for, as a fan standpoint, it's freaking awesome. I mean, you've been waiting eight, nine months to get football, and now you've got these big-time games, uh, big-time stages. It's going to be awesome. But, yeah, for a team like Utah, you go on the road at Florida, and if you lose that game, suddenly, you know, you're dropping – deep into the top 25, right? Maybe 20, 21, something like that. And you're basically playing catch up the rest of the season. So it's a, it's a risk for a team like that, but that's how you build your profile, right? You have to build, you have to go on the road. You have to, to SEC teams, a big 10 team an ACC team. If you're a team like Utah, yes, they're in the pac 12, but I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you have to do. So yeah, I'm really interested to see what they do. I like Cam Rising. I think he's really talented. I think that defense is pretty special. So in Florida, there's a lot of question marks there. Uh, so that's that's certainly one that I think a road team from call it a lesser conference, certainly now that uh, UCLA and USC are out of the Pac-12. Um, that's that's a big statement game for Utah. And I think they I think they got the horses to carry it, but let's find out. I mean, I feel like Florida loses games like this a lot more than a lot of sec teams so or at least they have in the recent past so that'll be kind of interesting uh, let's move on to one more top 25 matchup you know a little bit less luster but still kind of exciting you got number three 23 cincinnati at number 19 arkansas arkansas is a six and a half point favorite look we talked about it on the show last year what sam Pittman has done at arkansas is pretty amazing uh, yes, you have the status of being in the SEC and deep in the South where you can get some some good recruits, but the guys that he's competing against in terms of Alabama's and LSU, everybody in the SEC, uh, what he's done at Arkansas is actually pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I just remember last year picking Arkansas to beat Georgia uh, right before Georgia went in and beat them 31 nothing. So that was foolish. foolish. Got a lot of experience uh, picking the, uh, the Razorbacks. So based on that, um, I'm still going to ride with them. It's it's at Arkansas, and that's I just imagine Cincinnati that being a tough place for them to play, especially you know with they have a lot of turnover from the college football playoff roster they had last season. I still think you know Luke Fickle is a great coach. He's got that program in really good shape. Um, but for the first game of the season at Arkansas, and like you mentioned, Sam Pittman's done a really good job of turning that team from kind of a decrepit afterthought in that conference to kind of a sleeper team you could see challenging some of the bigger guys in the SEC. So. I think it's going to be a good game. It might be the best ranked matchup we have all weekend, um, but I like the Razorbacks in that one. Yeah, and look, I mean, you give the love to, to Sam Pittman. He's done a fantastic job, but Luke Fickle has done an incredible job at Cincinnati. I mean, that maybe five, ten years ago was seen as basically a dead-end job. He obviously goes from Ohio State to Cincinnati. He's built that that uh, that team up, moved conferences. And I mean, as you look at the broader picture, right, as we kind of sort of – plummet to this potential big three right with the conferences in college football I mean Cincinnati would never be in the conversation five years from five years ago and now here they are and this is a team where look I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of attractiveness there um it's it's he's turned this this program into something that is it's something you want to watch. And yeah, they've lost a lot of turnover. Obviously, Desmond Ritter, the quarterback position, Sauce Gardner, Kobe Bryant, a few others. Uh, but what Luke Fickle has done at Cincinnati is something that you cannot ignore. And, and as, as these sort of super conferences take shape, so to speak, Cincinnati is going to be in that, in that conversation as somebody who, you know, one of these big conferences might want to pull away. So that'll be kind of interesting. And I think that's certainly a, a big game in week one for them at Arkansas if they can get a win there. Um, but look, we mentioned some of these games, you know, having having a say here with college football playoff, which, of course, this year, there's still we're still the old format four teams. But big news today as college football, the playoff is going to expand to 12 teams. It's official. Um, it looks like obviously the plan was to do it for 2026 because the deal runs out in 2025, but they're pushing for uh, the NCAA to input it next year. Um, look, we We've talked about this before, Andrew, but now that this is actually something that might be a reality sooner rather than later, do you like it? Do you like 12 teams or do you want to stick at four? Are you, uh, you know, one of those guys who is old school? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you say old school, but the, I mean, the playoff itself is, is not even 10 years old yet. So it's I guess of, old school would be no playoff at all. And we just somebody yeah, picks a champ, yeah, champion at the end. That was just all that. I mean, there's a reason we've had five or six different ways of determining the champion because it's you're never going to find something that's going to make people 100 percent happy. But at least, at least with the playoff, you're, you're, you're proving that whoever emerges from that gauntlet of whether it's four teams or 12 teams, they're clearly a champion at the end. And, and, you know, as a fan who's a fan of a college football 
team that's not always in the thick of things, never in the thick of things, excuse me. I just want to see like the best team, the, the best objective matchups at the end in the championship game. And I think the playoff does that versus the BCS or the AP poll where they were just writers or some, you know, computer system was trying to determine the two best teams where the playoff definitively tells you, here's the two best teams at the end of it, whether it's four or 12 teams, you know, I, it's tough with, with 12 teams because you're adding an extra game and it's clear that's just kind of a cash grab move. But at this point, you know, that's what college football is. There's a reason we're having this expansion that's kind of been really tumultuous. And there's a reason they've been talking about expanding the playoff ever since they even established it. So it, even it was, the potential dissolution of the NCAA itself and the yeah. college football committee just breaking off on its own. So it, this was this was like never really for me in doubt. It was always going to happen. Um, it was ultimately what's that final number going to be? And heck, 12 teams may grow to 16 one day. You never know. But I, I think it'll be more fun because you're adding the element of some home games for those first round, you know, matchups. It'll be really exciting to see, you know, potentially like some of the biggest venues in college football get that experience of like, oh, we're at the big house for a college football playoff game. We're at Penn State. We're at, you know, name whatever crazy venue where you could just see it's going to be a great atmosphere versus some of these um, neutral site games, which are, you know, they're still big games, but I think that element will make it more fun. But ultimately, I think we're going to see, you know, a lot of dilution of like the 12th team not even being in the same tier as the the top three or four. So that might make some of those first round games uncompetitive, but only time will tell. We need, we need to see it. And you never know, maybe the reshuffling of the college football playoff leads to, you know, different recruiting, different, you know, um, power struggles within different conferences. You just never know. I just want to see it play out ultimately before I really can say whether it's a bad or good thing in total. Yeah, certainly the the dissenters of the 12 team playoff, right, are the ones who say, well, even the 14 playoff right now, as it stands, hasn't been competitive in those first rounds in forever, right? I mean, you get Notre Dame getting blown out or Cincinnati getting blown out by Alabama. Um, it, it, it hasn't been competitive with four teams, so why would it be competitive with 12? But my answer to that is this is America and we love playoffs, we love urgency. Uh, we love eyeballs and certainly we love money, right? And this, this is, let's make no bones about it. This is a move about money, but from a fan standpoint, it's exciting. I mean, if you're talking about a potential breakaway and making college football its own entity away from the NCAA, one thing you have to do is, is you have to increase that, that exposure, right? And I mean, it's, football is already the biggest sport in America and the NFL is unrivaled, but college football is kind of 1B to NFL's 1A. And everybody loves it. But I mean, if you're going to give, you know, teams on the outside, right? Like, I mean, even think about this, like a, like a Michigan state last year, right? I mean, that's, that's a solid fan base. Those are people that love their Spartans and they missed out on the playoffs last year, but they, they would have made it in a 12 team format and they could have made some noise. And I think, you know, there's that, yeah, there's going to be some real, real bad first round games with 12 teams, but there's also going to be some really good ones and some surprises. Right. And you kind of wonder with, the college football playoff as it's been with four teams in the last few years, right? Like there are teams that miss, that miss out five, six that, Hey, maybe they could have made some noise. And so I think at least this opens the field up to, all right, if there's a team that is sort of peaking at, at the right time, maybe not a lot of people are talking about them. They sneak in as an at large or they win their, win one of the, one of the six teams to win their conference uh, make some noise. And I, I think just growing that exposure and giving more fan bases a reason to, participate in playoff football i mean that's all the better and of course the money comes with it so so it's it's kind of a win-win obviously they've got to work out some things in terms of you know hotels and all that kind of logistical stuff that we don't need to go into but uh i love it i think it's great yeah it's, there's going to be some bad games but that's just what it is because we've got bad games already so screw it yeah totally all it takes is that one game where the 12 team it's the five and they roll in there and, and they beat number one. And we're all like, of course, this was always a, a, you know, an amazing idea from the start. There was never any dissension. This was always a good idea, but you know, it's just like you said, it's, 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 you get more people involved throughout the season. You know, it, it completely changes the landscape of football. If you're the 14th ranked team and that last week you're, you're trying to make sure you can shuffle your way up, potentially getting into the 12 seed. I mean, we've seen it in the NBA with the plan game. It's made everything much more competitive throughout the entire stretch of the season because more teams are at play. They have more to play for throughout the entire season. You know, if we get some dud games, whatever, because we already get them now, might as well let's, it makes it more interesting and it gets more people involved. So for me, it's, it's a win. Yeah, I totally agree. There's nothing worse. And it's regardless of sport, major league baseball has been one of the worst offenders in my lifetime, but 
you know, when you get halfway through the season and you already know who those teams are going to the playoffs, it's like, why, why bother? Why go to the game? Why watch the game? You know, why do anything other than maybe gamble on it? Cause you're a degenerate. But uh, other than that, I mean, yeah, that, be able to expand that exposure and expand the access to the playoff all the way up to the very last, you know, last game of the season across 12, 14, 16 teams. Absolutely. Uh, and let's really touch on, obviously, the big story, Andrew. We haven't really gotten to talk, talk about it over the summer, but um, of course, college football expansion is on the way. You got Oklahoma, Texas. They are expediting their leave to the SEC, go, leaving as soon as possible. Of course, the big story with USC and UCLA uh, going to the Big Ten. What's next from this, Andrew? I mean, certainly you, you read a lot of different things in terms of, okay, well, who's going to poach who? Or, you know, is the Pac-12 and the Big 12 going to merge somehow? What's next for you? What do you what do you see happening here in the next call it 18 months that that is sort of that next shoe to drop? Well, the next shoe to drop is just what what happens with Notre Dame. I think that is the, the thing that every conference, as soon as that decision is made, whether they're going to stay independent and have a new TV contract with NBC or if they're going to join a conference. I think as soon as that pin drops, I think you, you have every resulting move, a direct result of that. Um, the other thing that I think is preventing this from already having happened is the ACC's um, exit uh, penalty. Yeah, it's 100 mil plus. So hard for those schools to find a way out of there until 2036. Whereas I think if, if there was easy to, to back out, I think you would have already seen the ACC essentially dissolve. I think you would have seen Clemson, Florida State, Miami, Virginia Tech potentially trying to weasel their way into the to SEC. I think all the North Carolina schools would have been like Big Ten. You know, we want to we want to get involved with you guys. Syracuse up there potentially. I just don't see the ACC out of all the conferences having any shot. Any shot. There's just not a great history of football in that conference outside of really Florida State, Clemson, and so I, I think that's a conference that's easily going to get eaten up. And then I think you know the Pac-12 and the Big 12. It makes all the sense in the world to kind of combine forces, but especially now that you see like Oregon and Washington are kind of in having talks with the big 10 that feels like that's where they're kind of headed. So, you know, it's really hard to sit here and predict exactly what school is going to do what, but to answer your question of what's going to happen next, I think all the schools are kind of waiting on bated breath for what does Notre Dame do? Because as much as they haven't necessarily been the competitive, you know, juggernaut that they've always kind of been associated with, you know, that brand is, is a, like, there's a reason they were able to get their own TV contract that was on par with some of these conferences, you know, 14 schools commanded the same amount of money as one school. And so for me, it's just like whatever Notre Dame does completely changes the landscape of what every other resulting move is going to be after that. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously that Notre Dame has been all over the news in terms of what are they going to do? Are they going to join the big 10? Certainly they are the best brand out there that is still available for the taking, but you know, that part of that makes me wonder Maybe they're just better off being independent. I always felt that it was kind of weird and kind of a huge uh, gamble for them. But uh, of course, they have the you know the partnership with NBC, and you know they are sort of on that island where they can exist as an independent pretty much as long as they want to. But obviously, you know their athletic director uh, is on the the panel with the college football playoffs, so he's certainly very, very tapped into sort of the future of this sport and how everything's going. But yeah, Notre Dame is going to be very interesting. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they just stick with what they're doing and they can work out maybe another TV deal. But um, I would love to see them in the Big Ten. I think that would be really interesting, especially now, you know, you get that longstanding rivalry with USC, um, the Purdue that they play a lot. So uh, I think it would be interesting. But yeah, you're right. It, it looks like not just the ACC, but the Pac-12 is going to be reeling. You've got Oregon, Washington already in talks with the Big Ten. We've also heard potentially Cal Stanford going, which not really sure why the Big Ten would want that but you know uh, sure get a little bit more of the bay area why not um but yeah it's it's a very interesting thing and it, it's going to be kind of crazy to to see it all play out but um i think probably three to five years from now yeah we're going to be looking at maybe three major conferences and maybe that's good for football maybe it's not but i guess only time will tell so let's let's actually look at this season right so we're, that's kind of looking ahead but do you have any kind of let's let's go teams first let's go teams first so yeah. Okay. We could just sit here and go back and forth. Like, all right, who's the, who's the four college football playoff teams? Oh, Alabama, Georgia, somebody else. Uh, give me one team, Andrew, who's maybe not necessarily in the conversation who could really make some noise. Well, you know, the team that is surprising. Um, 
I think it classifies as kind of a sleeper pick would be Baylor. And I know they're, they're highly ranked this year. And, you know, it's not like I'm picking a team that's unranked to kind of suddenly come out of nowhere, but they just feel like a team that no matter what turnover they get, cause you know, they had Art Bryles, he left, he left that program in shambles and all of a sudden Matt rule comes in and then he leaves kind of early, but yet it, it seems like they always kind of find themselves right on the precipice of that college football playoff you know, that they're number seven, they're number six in the country, kind of going to the last week of the season. And to me, like, I can't really put my finger on exactly why, but they just seem to have a really good foundation in place of always being competitive. And with the, the Big 12 kind of lacking a clear favorite, I mean, I know Oklahoma is always really good, but with with uh, Lincoln Riley leaving, you know, and I know Brett Venables is no slouch, but, you know, it's still his first season and it's hard to imagine him suddenly turning around that team within one season. Um, they're, they're a team that I could see maybe like running away with the big 12 this year. And if they're undefeated at the end of the season, I mean, that almost assuredly puts them in a great position to be a college football playoff team. So I know it's not like I'm picking, Oh, uh, um, I'm picking coastal Carolina to go undefeated and to be clearly a, a college football playoff team. But I think they're, they're a team that, you know, your average college football fan, college football fan may not actually be thinking is right in the thick of things when it comes to the playoff. Yeah, I like that. I also love me some Coastal Carolina and some Grayson McCall. He's awesome. Uh, I love watching them play. But yeah, certainly I don't think uh, I don't think anybody's picking them to make any noise here in the college football playoff. Look, one team that I, I kind of hate that I'm doing this, but I just can't stop looking at him is Texas. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian, look, it's a guy who knows what he's doing. Obviously, there has been all kinds of struggles over the last decade or more with Texas. Every year they are, Texas is back, right? Texas is back. Oh, here we go. And Texas is never back. Uh, but Quinn Ewers, look, that's a dude who he's got great flow. He's got great swagger. Um, it's one of those things where I think, no, do I really think Texas actually has a chance? Not really. Um, you mentioned, you just mentioned, obviously, Oklahoma potentially running away with the Big 12. Um, obviously, we've got the Red River rivalry, uh, Red River shootout, whatever you want to call it. That's a lot easier on the tongue. But look, if Quinn Ewers comes in there, works with Steve Sarkeesian, everything clicks and that offense goes with, you know, the athletes that they've always been able to recruit, but never get results. Um, Texas might be back. So there I said it as sick as I am every single season, hearing somebody say Texas is back. I'll say it right here and Texas might be back. <laughs> so I'll put a might in front of it. Cause I don't think they're back for sure. But uh, so look, I mentioned Quinn Ewers. Are there any, specific players Andrew that you're looking at this season you know not, maybe not necessarily they could they could be big players they could be guys who maybe not a lot of people are talking about but you're looking at a first round pick who who's kind of a player that that you're focusing on this year that's going to excite um I, I have two and they're both ACC quarterbacks that I think are going to be really fun to watch I think they're going to emerge at the end of the season kind of like the Kenny Pickett's uh that we've kind of seen the last couple of years whether these ACC guys are not on great teams that are really in the playoff mix, but they just put up in crazy numbers and they, their, their style of play really translates well to the NFL. And that's Bill Jerkovich at Boston college and Brennan Ooh, the jerk at Virginia. And Jerkovich was actually kind of a player that people were really excited about last season before he got hurt and same with Armstrong, but he played much more last season. But as you know, as a guy who, who's a fan of an ACC team and had to go up against these guys, they look like NFL quarterbacks and especially Armstrong who's playing in Virginia where it's like, you know, he's playing with nothing. There's, there's no, you know, NFL talent on that, on that team, especially at the skill position players, but he still just puts up gaudy, gaudy numbers. And you can't help, but just think this guy's a baller. And he, if you put him on a team with some really good talent, he could really make some crazy things happen. And Jerkovich, I think was a Notre Dame commit at one point. So he's not a guy that's come out of nowhere. Um, both guys are just really exciting. And I think, you know, the ACC, like we've kind of mentioned, isn't really the, the hub of college football focus. But I think those are two guys that when it gets time to near the draft, we might be hearing a lot as, oh, those guys are first round potential quarterbacks. Don't be surprised if they're sneaking up into that first round and really, you know, kind of coming out of nowhere. So those are the two guys that I think may not be on necessarily competitive teams, but would be really fun to watch and might make some noise at the draft next year. I like it. A little ACC hot stove. Never, nobody ever saw it coming from me, Andrew. That's beautiful. Uh, well, certainly, look, I'm not going to surprise either because one of the guys that I'm certainly going to be watching extra closely is Braylon Allen running back from Wisconsin. Look, I'm, I'm under no, uh, no thoughts that Wisconsin is going to do a whole lot this year. They're going to be, it's going to be another standard nine and four, 10 and four, something like that. If we make it to the the big 10 championship game, but Braylon Allen is the next great running back and Wisconsin just, 
churns them out. That's what they do. And as a freshman, I mean, the dude is built like a 25 year old man. And as an 18 year old, he was running over big 10 to competition. So I'm certainly looking at Braylon Allen, but this is a little bit cheating, Andrew, but really what I'm looking at is the transfers. So I was doing a little bit of digging earlier today and of the 131 there's 131 FBS teams, 59 of the starting quarterbacks are going to be transfers. And there are still apparently 10 remaining QB battles open and nine of those 10 involve a transfer. So there's a potential where we have 68 of 131 quarterbacks starting in the FBS this year who have transferred. Uh, obviously it is, it, it has been, it's, it's an incredible change from the last few years of college football with what the transfer window has brought into it. Obviously um, you can mention the NIL deals, of course that plays into it as well, but this fact that we're basically in this, in this era of true free agency in college football, and you've got almost 60 guys out of 131. I mean, it's like 55% dudes who are going to be starting quarterbacks for a new school this season. And so obviously you've got Caleb Williams, USC, Quinn Ewers, we mentioned him. One that I'm actually really interested in looking at, and not a lot of people are talking about him, but Michael Penix in Washington, uh, a transfer from Indiana. And yes, he's got an incredible name. Uh, Michael Penix Jr., I should also say, but fantastic name. But look, the guy can play. Uh, I've seen, I saw him at Indiana. He couldn't stay healthy. That was his problem, but he is absolutely electric. And you're talking about a Pac-12 that is beaten down here with the news about US, USC and UCLA this summer. Uh, it's wide open. And I think Washington could sort of be one of those teams that potentially makes that run um, and, and gets a, a college football playoff, maybe, right? And they may go six and six and I look like an idiot, but I certainly am very excited to see Michael Penix Jr. play in Washington. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, think about the game last night, the backyard brawl. It's West Virginia and Pittsburgh. And the two starting quarterbacks were both on the USC University of Southern California roster last season. Like who the Trojan War. Who so would have two guys transfer from LA and they're playing in the Pittsburgh West Virginia rivalry just you know a couple months later. So yeah, yeah, and they and they both played well. I mean, yeah. they, they, it was a great game. They both played really, really well. So I mean, it's one of those things now where I mean, you've got, of course, always coaches you know changing schools, offensive coordinators, but this sort of changing of these actual players and not just players but difference makers for you know Power Five conference teams. It, like it's unprecedented really. Yeah, no, I just, we're in a new normal in college football and what we think is weird or new to us now in five, 10 years, it's going to be even different. You know, it's going to be so standard that a third of your roster is transfers and, you know, it might make the product better because it really means like the best of the best, especially guys coming from smaller schools are being integrated into the, you know, bigger school programs. And, you know, it, it's going to hurt the smaller guy, like smaller schools, which, you know, if you're a graduate of the schools, I'm sorry, but when it comes to the bigger picture of the competitive teams, especially as we probably move towards a format that only really has 60 teams in those top three conferences that really have any shot at doing anything, I think it's just going to lead to better product of the top end of the entire college football, which, you know, may not make everyone happy, but if you're just a, an, an average fan that has no stake in the game, I think it makes the overall product better. Yeah, I agree. Look, I mean, I'm someone who has always kind of loved free agency, right? This ability for a player to choose for himself and not just end up. And that's not to say that, yeah, when you go to school, you're, you're making your choice as a, you know, a high school senior, but you're making it as a high school senior, as a 17, 18 year old, uh, you know, you, you commit to, we see this all the time, you commit to a program, right? And then next, the next season that, that coach is gone, the entire coaching staff is gone. Next thing you know, you got to reevaluate and, you know, in previous years, it was, all right, you just, you're committed to this school, go figure it out. But now it's, now it puts the power in the player's hands, which I think is, it, it's the beauty of it, right? And if you're, you know, certainly the NIL players deserve to get paid, but they also deserve to make the choice that's best for them. So while it's, it's kind of weird, you know, year over year seeing these guys, you're seeing a JT Daniels in West Virginia and Keaton Slovis in Pittsburgh, uh, it's good for the game. It's good for the players. And ultimately, hopefully it will be good for, uh, for the, for the daddy league in the NFL, because you got guys who are in good situations that they were able to choose. And hopefully they're able to be successful. Of course, there's a very small subset of those guys who end up being successful in the NFL, but I think as, as long as you can prove the chances of as many guys as possible, then why, not, why the hell not? Uh, let's, let's move over to speaking of Big Daddy. Let's move over to a little NFL. So we got week one starts Thursday, Rams, Bills. That's going to be incredible. Um, 
What do you got overall, Andrew? I mean, we could go 50 different ways here, players to watch, teams to watch. What do you want to talk about NFL? Just why don't you tell me, guide me. Well, I mean, should I do my Russell Wilson pontification now or should I do it at the end of the segment? You tell me. You'll do uh, do it when we hit, like when we hit the record button, meaning we're off air. Okay. So you don't All have right. to. As a courtesy to our listeners, we have edited out Andrew's rambling, incoherent take on the Denver Broncos that in no way could be considered a rational response. May God have mercy on his soul. Now back to the show. Uh, I would hate to have that on the cutting room floor, but we'll see. We'll see where we're at time-wise here at the end, don't Andrew. Don't you but, cut but, that. Don't you cut that. No, that don't worry. We, we, won't, we won't cut that. You're fine. We won't cut that. We, we, we're, we're desperate for content here. So, you know, we're an amateur podcast, so we need all, all, the, all the content we can get. Uh, look, there's all kinds of big stories. Obviously, one that's, that's number one on my radar is what's going on with Jimmy G and the Niner situation. You can say whatever you want. I absolutely love this move. I mean, Jimmy G said it himself. I think even Kyle Shanahan said it a couple of days ago is nobody on player or front office side imagined, you know, a month ago that this was going to be possible. Everybody was ready to move on, but the way the court, the quarterback market kind of played out and, you know, obviously Deshaun Watson ending up in Cleveland and then getting suspended, but they like Jacoby Brissett, nobody getting injured in the preseason. It was one of those things that just fell in the Niners lap. And I absolutely love it. I, I look a huge discount for the best backup quarterback in the league. It works for Jimmy. He's got a chance to rehab himself. He's got a chance. There's going to be, somebody's going to get injured. You know, this is the NFL. Somebody is going to be a needy team who might be willing to kick in a little bit more for Jimmy G than maybe what he's worth. But I absolutely love this, Andrew. And I know maybe you don't like it as much. You're kind of wondering what the hell's going on here. But I think this is one of the most savvy and smart decisions that a front office could make is, okay, you got a guy, of course, we're not going to pay him 24 to $26 million to be a backup quarterback, but he's taking a huge pay cut. I mean, 16 to $18 million in pay cuts. Yes, he can win some, some, some money back with some incentives, but the whole idea is he's not going to play. But I guess my, my main thing here is, look, I, there is no animosity between a Jimmy G and, and Trey Lance. Like those guys get along, they're buddies, they're helping each other out. So I think a lot of teams in the league would give just about anything they possibly could to have a backup like Jimmy G who just wants to play football, but he's there to also help whatever, whatever's best for the team. Right. And I've seen a lot of quotes where it's just, he wanted to, he wanted to help the team. It was the right situation. Makes a ton of sense for me. Tell me why I'm wrong, Drew. Well, I, I just think having a guy that you've been in a Super Bowl and an, and an NFC championship with where you were moments away from potentially winning, if you don't drop an interception, I, I just think that invites potential conflict. I, you know, I, I get what you're saying that like you have probably the best backup quarterback situation in the NFL and especially with a, a player like Trey Lance, who is more mobile and probably has more potential of getting injured than most guys, you know, that's always a good theoretical thing to have happen. But I just feel like having a guy that really didn't lose the spot still there just invites conflict, especially when, you know, that first game or Trey Lance doesn't look good. It's going to have everyone wondering, okay, when do we put Jimmy in? When do we, you know, or we, do we need to uh, turn away from Trey Lance beyond just this game? I just think it invites a little bit of like second guessing of this plan for this player that you've just invested so much in. Whereas I feel like kind of just for the sake of, of, of the Niners, not just for this season, but for all of Trey Lance's, you know, time there, it would have made more sense to me as an outside fan with no stake in it, that you kind of just get rid of them and you say, we have no fallback. We're hundred percent committed to this situation. And it's just, it's all Trey Lance full steam ahead. Whereas now, whether Kyle Shanahan will do it, I think it's going to be like the biggest thing talked about every single week, especially if Trey Lance isn't a hit from the start. Do they put Jimmy in? When are they going to go to Jimmy? And I think that just potential for conflict is something that's going to potentially have some adverse effects on the Niners. But, you know, you're much more plugged in than I am. I don't necessarily know how Trey Lance has been performing um, in the preseason or at training camp, but just as an outsider who's completely unaware of what's been going on, the fact that they kept Jimmy G to me, kind of screams that they're not 100% invested in Trey Lance as the full doubt, you know, no doubt starter. Oh, yeah. And I'm not invested. I'm not 100% invested either. I mean, the guy's thrown 530 some odd 
throws in an actual game situation since high school. So, yeah, I mean, that was always going to be the question mark is, look, this guy is about as raw as they come. Is he going to be ready? And of course, like that's, that's, that was all what last season was for was for him to learn. He got into a few games. He played well. He had some struggles Yeah, Look, I've watched pretty much all of the Niners preseason games and yeah, it's, it's been painful and there have been some bad, bad throws that he's done. And look, I, I don't take into account, you know, a lot of these reports from training camp for a lot of these guys like, Oh yeah, he had a great day or he struggled or, you know, these were his stats. Yes. Of course those reps matter. But at the end of the day, you want a guy who's going to show up on game day on, on Sunday or a Monday night. Um, so I think Trey Lance is that guy. But if he's not, I think Trey Lance knows just as well as anyone how raw and how green he is. And I think he understands the situation where, yeah, look, the guy who's behind me right now, Jimmy G, he took this team to two NFC championship games, including a Super Bowl. This guy knows what he's doing. He's a professional, but he's also been a backup before too. He's been a backup to Tom Brady. The guy knows how to be a team player. And for someone like Trey Lance, he knows that, look, if I struggle and they move, they, they go to Jimmy G call it, you know, week five, Trey Lance is struggling. We're two, the Niners are two and two. You go to Jimmy G it's, it's not a replacement scenario. It's not like, yeah, Trey Lance has lost his job forever. And, you know, he's going to be mired in mediocrity the rest of his career. It's no, we're, we've got a, the Niners have a team that is prepared, that is well-stocked, very talented and prepared to go to make another playoff run. Right. And I'm not going to say it's going to be an NFC championship game again. That was magical last year or Super Bowl, but this is a playoff team. This is a playoff team top to bottom. And if Jimmy G gives them the best chance to do it this year and, you know, make our bet, put our best foot forward, then, then you do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it. I think this year is it's the last year, regardless. It doesn't matter how Jimmy G plays or how Trey Lance plays. It's obviously Trey Lance's team, but if it ever, if it gets passed over to Jimmy G because it's the best scenario and, and Kyle Shanahan is going to do that. He's going to do whatever's best for the team. He does not care about feelings or any of that kind of stuff. He's going to make the move that's best for the team. And if, and if it ends up being Jimmy G who, who is the best option for the team this year, great. But at the end of the year, he's going to be gone. And Trey Lance knows that. And I think he's smart enough to know that, that he's still got a lot of things to work on. And if he struggles, he's got the best backup in the league who's going to take his job for this year and for this year only. So I think from that standpoint, I love it. I love it. I think it's fine. I think as long as everybody can kind of keep their head on their shoulders, um, this is great. And of course, yeah, I want to see Trey Lance just be an absolute stud and, you know, lead this team to the playoffs and, and beyond. But if it ends up he struggles a little bit and you bring in Jimmy G for a couple games or Trey Lance, you know, gets a little injury. What more could you want than having a guy who's taken you to two, two NFC championship games in three years as a backup quarterback? I mean, I guess they could have the Seahawks quarterback battle going on. Geno Smith drew lock. Um, so I guess, well, you know. I mean, that's the other thing, you, you know, that Seattle Cleveland and probably a few others were just waiting with bated breath for the Niners to release Jimmy Garoppolo. And, oh. and so the Niners just said, no, nope, middle finger to you. We're keeping him. Screw you guys. So if they're going to, the, the, the Seahawks themselves are in big trouble and I cannot wait to see that. Well, I, I do mean, I think the Seahawks are actively kind of tanking this year. I, I don't think they'd ever come out and say it. And Pete Carroll, you know, at his age would never say he's just going to give up a season. But I mean, I mean, you're talking to the guy who's seen more quarterback battles in the last five years than I hope to see in a lifetime. I'm, I'm very familiar with a team that is trying to justify not having a quarterback by saying we have a quarterback when we clearly don't. I can tell you how this story ends in Seattle. They're going to be bad. <laughs> so, you know, let's just, uh, let's just be thankful that neither of us are Seattle Seahawks fans this year. Yeah. Thank God. I, I've, I've been thankful every day that I'm not a Seahawks fan. It, 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 all the more, especially this year. Uh, all right. Any, any other takes on NFL? Cause I've, I've got a few MLB things I want to hit on as we're kind of ramping up for playoffs, but you got any other takes for the NFL that, that just burning in your mind, Andrew, it's been a few months since we got together. The only other thing that I think, you know, all NFL fans can agree on is uh, uh, Dan fucking Campbell <laughs> guy is the best. Um, I hope he's in the NFL forever. I don't actually know how good of a football coach he, he is in terms of the results. Um, but man, is he entertaining? Is he just a fun personality? And if this thing in Detroit doesn't work out, I hope to God he becomes, you know, a prominent media member or something. Cause he's just, he's just like that ball of, of like football masculine energy, but not in a problematic way, you know, where it can, it can kind of get overboard, but it's just, he's just fun. 
he, he brings some sincere intensity and you know this hard knocks has been really fun to watch because of him so i gotta give hey, him a shot before the game he's right. a football guy i mean that, that's one of those things right i mean last year kind of seeing those <laughs> those pressers that he was doing talking about biting kneecaps and this and that it, it's really easy to be like okay dan campbell's he's just a tough guy right and tough guys in my mind yeah there's football guys and then there's football guys in terms of intelligence right there's football guys in terms of toughness and intelligence and you got a bill belichick that's football guy in terms of intelligence matt patricia is one of both right he's he's toughness and and intelligence but yeah of course he flamed out in detroit which pretty much everybody's done for the last two decades but one of the things that's interesting is Dan Campbell knows what the hell he's doing. And that was something that I didn't really kind of latch onto until I was watching some of these hard knocks. I mean, the guy knows football. He knows how to relate to players. Does this mean the lions are going to make any noise in the NFC North? Probably not because they're the lions, but yeah, dude. I mean, that's a guy you can get behind. Absolutely. And he's not just some big, dumb jock, tough guy who's who sort of lucked his way into running an NFL team. This guy knows football. He knows how to call plays. I mean, just look what he did with Amon Ra St. Brown last year, sort of getting him involved, which shout out to my man Amon Ra because uh, he helped me win my fantasy league last year, which was pretty incredible. Um, but Dan Campbell knows what the hell he's doing. And I love this story. I don't know if you saw it, Andrew, but like it was like a, a background on Dan Campbell and the dude just – Absolutely. He has like eight cups of coffee in the morning, just rips tobacco in his bottom lip and loves to have like a pint of gelato every night. And that's a guy I can get behind. That's the Holy Trinity right there. Oh yeah. And he does uh burpees with the team. Even though the last 10, he was definitely not doing them all the football way. guy, just football guy. That's what yeah. he is. Um, no, yeah. I mean, he, he's been a pleasure to watch. I think the lions are everyone's team that they're just secretly hoping, you know, has a better than expected season. And they're like, uh, you know, they're like the Rudy. Of, of, uh, of the NFL this year we just we just we all want to see them do well you know you're not we know they're not going to like be a playoff contender or anything but they're just like a fun story and you know that's always good to have that's very presumptuous to, to assume that everybody wants to see Rudy do well because I, I know a subset of, of friends I, who I, just I, absolutely hated that nerd and just wished he would get the hell out of the way I've heard the same thing actually so but you know as a sports metaphor I think it's still you know sure sure yeah, way to dig deep for that metaphor. I like that. Um, look, <laughs> let's jump over to, to Major League Baseball. Obviously, we're winding down. We got about four to five weeks left before the playoffs. Look, a lot of big stories. I mean, Albert Pujols is nearing 700 career dingers. Aaron Judge could potentially break Barry Bonds' a single season home run record. Doesn't look like he slowed down a little bit. Uh, you got Shohei Otani doing what Shohei Otani does. But I guess the weird thing, Andrew, is – I mean, we're putting this at the end of the, the, the last five to 10 minutes of this show. And I don't see it really talked about anywhere. Obviously, we mentioned it previously in the show, NFL, NCAA football, they, they run this country. But Major League Baseball, I mean, this is, this is the time where five, 10, 15 years ago, these are the stories that are on the front page of ESPN and all over the news. Nobody seems to even be talking about some of these great runs by Pujols, Judge, and Otani. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I posted this question. It's when you think about the turn of the century when we had the Maguire Sosa home run battle, and then just a few years later, Barry Bonds broke 70, you know, 73. Was that the single season record? Was it 70? Whatever. You know, he 73. Broke, 73. I mean, those were some of the biggest stories, not just of that year, but of, of that decade of recent memory and all yeah, of they weren't they weren't just baseball stories, they were all of professional sports stories. And we have so many things going on in baseball that should objectively be just dominating the nation's attention when it comes to sports. And no one cares. Like, I mean, Albert Pujols has been around for, I mean, there was a stat this last week where Serena Williams and Albert Pujols, you know, she won a match at the U.S. Open. He hit a home run on the same day in 2001, and he did it on the same day in 2022. I mean, the guy's been around for forever, and that's not a big deal. Aaron Judge is on the biggest team in the league in terms of the brand notoriety he's about to pass their season single season home run record no one cares Shohei Otani is literally doing things that have not really been done in a hundred years since Babe Ruth who's probably the most iconic baseball player of all time and yet Otani's the first player ever with 30 home runs and 10 wins in a season and it's it's unreal getting zero traction If, if if you know, you, you talk to your to your grandma who doesn't follow baseball. She doesn't even know who these guys are, which 
would have just been unheard of 20 years ago. And it just, it's kind of an encapsulation of just how in a state of disarray the MLB is. I know they're kind of making some changes. They expanded the playoffs this year. They've, you know, made the, the designated hitter a thing in the National League. There's a couple more rules coming down the pipeline that hopefully will make things better. But it just goes to show they, they missed the train by about 10, 15 years in instituting some of these changes. And the fact that we have all these really incredible things going on in baseball and no one cares, I don't really see how they come back from that. I, I think we're fully on board. The, they're a regional sport for the rest of time. And, you know, that's just kind of insane to think about this sport that for, you know, a century plus was quote unquote, this nation's pastime. And now it's really just an afterthought. You know, it, it's really just goes to show when you take a step back and, and look at the 30,000 foot view, the state of things in the MLB. And, you know, to be fair, like I'm, I'm a Rockies fan. They're pathetic. I've watched one game this season. You know, I like, I just don't see any reason to, to be an MLB fan the same way I was you know, 10, 15 years ago, even when my team wasn't good. It's just, it's really a state of disarray that's, you know, it's sad to see, but at the same time, they did it to themselves. Yeah, it's certainly different. Uh, I mean, if you want to look at 15 years ago, the the divergent paths that Major League Baseball and the NBA took, and the NBA embraced sort of this new age, social media, different marketing, marketing, you know, internationally. Major League Baseball has always been an international sport, and yet they somehow couldn't capitalize on it. Uh, and obviously, you can place as much of that blame on on Rob Manfred as as humanly possible. But look, I, I do think I disagree that it's just a regional sport. Uh, yes, is it sitting behind the NBA and the NFL and NCAA football? Of course, it is. But uh, there are some interesting, encouraging things. You mentioned it. You know, expanding the playoffs. Um, certain things of that nature and some of the stuff they're experimenting with in the minor leagues, like the pitch clock, the pitch clock by all accounts has worked wonders. It's, it's truncated the game from, you know, by 20 to 30 minutes, uh, which is huge, right? Because these, these pitcher changes and all this bullshit, it's just, it gets to be so obnoxious. Um, I mean, there's also something else that I thought was pretty interesting. I, I just noticed that there was a a major a minor league game on MLB network the other day and they've got you can challenge pitches so look this could get out of hand but if you give if you treat it like a challenge for you know first base out of first base something like that you give a team two challenges three challenges a game you can actually challenge a pitch call in minor league baseball where if it's if it's on the line they do it and it's it's in five seconds they use the same technology that they use for tennis and they'll show the ball whether or not it hit the strike zone or not i mean those are the kind of things that yeah it should have been implemented the major league baseball just decided to not innovate for a really really long time just thought they were going to sit on their pedestal and everybody obviously that is that has not worked out for them. So now they're late to the party, but they are trying to change. And so I think some of that stuff is actually kind of interesting, but I digress a little bit because I want to talk about pool holes a little bit and let me know how you feel about this, Andrew, because I find this very interesting. Look, Albert Pujols was one of my favorite players growing up. I, I thought he was incredible. I mean, this guy basically made the Cardinals a household name. Obviously everybody in St. Louis, if you want to call it regional, they love him, but Albert Pujols is an international superstar, but let's go through just a quick split here of his last four months. In May, he hit 188 with two home runs, which were both in the same game against Pittsburgh, who's awful. In June, he hit 158 with zero home runs. And then in July, he hit 320 with three home runs. And in August, 361 with eight home runs. Now, I am all for a good story, Andrew, but how does a 43 quote unquote, because we have no idea how old he is. He might be 48 or 58 as a 40, 43, 44 year old dude suddenly up his average by 200 points and just start hitting bombs on, on his way to 700. I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say <laughs> in terms of what Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa, or even Albert Pujols were once accused of, but doesn't it feel a little fishy? Yeah. The guy's like sniffing this milestone and suddenly he goes from a 100 hitter with two home runs in two months. And now he's hitting 320, 361 with yeah, no, 11 it, home runs in two months. It feels fishy, especially because, you know, the last, however, his entire Angels career, he was not really doing anything, you know? 
Um, and then for him to suddenly be putting up eight home runs in a month is pretty wild. so bad with the angels. I mean, he, he was done. Like we were burying him three, four years ago. Now here he is hitting 361 with eight homers in August. What, what? Yeah. I mean, all, all I know is it's just, I, you hope that he's not doing anything weird. I don't see how taking steroids in the middle of the season would season would suddenly take you from two home runs to 11 in the last two months. I mean, I don't know enough about steroids to know the specifics. But you, you don't like think steroids uh, affect your power positively? Well, I think they do, but that's a huge spike for that to be the single, um, you know, variable added to the to the equation. Um, you know, you think he was I, just I hitting weights more? I wonder if there's he just he, he got into a, a groove. You know, Seamus, our, our producer, put in here that he got his power back from the home run. Derby. He got hot. Yeah, he got hot. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. From an objective standpoint. <laughs> It's just fun to see a guy that has been around my entire life as a baseball fan, inching closer to 700 home runs, and just to be able to kind of witness that is cool. But I will definitely admit it is weird to see this sudden spike um, from basically no home runs outside of one game the first half of the season to 11 in two months is uh, definitely room for questioning. I will definitely give you that. Got it. So you basically spent two and a half minutes disagreeing with me just so you could come back around and agree with me. That's nice. Hey, man, I'm just here to um, provide some insight that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, and typically, I am not necessarily going to give you the best MLB insight this season. <laughs> All right, well, let's bail you out because we are almost out of time. So let's go to dudes and duds. I'm going to give you my dude really quickly. And Maybe this is cheating, maybe it's not, but I'm going to call this a hybrid because this dude that I'm about to tell you about is a dude-dud hybrid. His name's Matt Mraz. If you haven't read about this guy, you definitely should. It's a very, very long story, but I'm going to go ahead and try to truncate it as best as possible. This guy, Matt Mraz, is on the Corn Ferry Tour. It's basically the AAA of golf. Uh, this guy claims to have had 36 aces in his career. Aces, that's hole-in-one. Uh, eight of which were on par fours, uh, but he only counts 32 official aces because four were on practice rounds. Now, I guess there was some reporter for the Golf Digest or something similar who did a little bit of digging and asked some of his playing partners about these aces. Apparently, all of those aces were on blind shots. Uh, and for those of you scoring at home, there's only been one ace ever on a par four in PGA tour history. It was some guy named Andrew McGee at TPC Scottsdale in 2001. So that's a little bit of the background. This guy, Matt Mraz, Matty M he's, he's claiming he's got 36 aces in his career. I think 19 of which occurred in like a four or five year period, which kind of just sets the stage for, all right, a little bit of question, right? Uh, so this guy was playing in the Q school qualifier in Nebraska. I mean, this is, this is a big time tourney. These are guys who are literally, I mean, it's former PGA players who don't have enough points on, on the tour to be able to stay on the tour or amateurs who are on their way up. So this is, this is big time. These are guys playing for their careers, for their professional lives. He's playing apparently the first two days he's there's a little bit of questions from his playing partners as to the integrity of his play. But on the third round, he, for one specific hole, he sh he's shooting shots all over the map, right? He's, he's pulling it left. He's pulling it right. He's out of bounds. On one specific hole, he's got an uphill shot from about 200 yards. His partners specifically said afterwards that they were sure it was 60 feet short. Next thing you know, they're hitting their shots on the other side of the fairway. He comes running up to them with a ball in his hand saying, hey, it's in the hole. It must have hit a turkey. Uh, I don't know what they're doing out in Nebraska on the, the golf course, but I guess there must have been some turkeys out there. Anyhow, that that's one. That's a that's a dude level excuse right there. So apparently this happened multiple times. The officials from the tournament went back to each hole in question, and he had balls littered everywhere. So literally, this dude was hitting balls out of bounds, dropping new balls and taking new shots, and saying they're ending up in the hole. So look, what amateur golfer hasn't you know given a little kick out of the out of the the brush a little bit right but this dude is literally a semi-pro playing for his life and yeah he's a cheater he got caught he got dq'd he's a dud for that but he's an absolute dude for having the stones to do such a bold place lie for really over the last five to six years and that's that's the type of dude level commitment that i'll put into a dude's yeah i was wondering where the dude aspect of this was going to come into play there it is. Just absolute stones. I mean, can you imagine like any, any guy who's literally doing something as his living, as the way he feeds his family and just cheating time after time after time. And not just like, 
kind of random cheating. Like, no, no, no. I've had 36 hole in ones in my career. Oh yeah. That 200 foot shot that I said, I literally said, there's a quote that says, and I'm sorry for the children at home. I skull fucked that. And then you walk up. Oh yeah. It's in the hole. No, no, no. I mean, look, amateur golfers can relate. We've maybe moved the ball here or there, but when you're talking about playing for your life, uh, that's dude level commitment to the lie in hand. Yeah. I mean, so that's one, why I'm giving it to him. Two things. I mean, one, there's definitely no children listening to this podcast. Um, I really? You sure? I'm, I'm very sure. We, I don't think we're, we're popping up too highly on a uh, Disney plus these days, but uh, we have an NC 17 rating. We should, that'd be fun. We should, but two, I mean, I, I admit there's a little bit of, you know, some respectability to being cocky, but you know, let's, let's, let's uh, overindulge my stats. Um, but yeah, for a guy who's on the corn ferry tour to say, I have two golf courses worth of hole in ones that said eight, eight on par fours, eight yeah. of them. <laughs> that's, that's pretty, pretty nuts. Um, so that's just some, some, uh, unlogical amounts of, of confidence that even though I wouldn't have picked him, I, I get why you picked him as yours. Um, my dude is really a dude out of the week, and, and it's honestly, it's the dudette of all dudettes. It's the GOAT. I know I just got a notification as we were recording this that she fell in the third set of her match at the U.S. Open, effectively probably meaning that it is now her retirement beginning, and that's Serena that's Williams. Career, I mean, yeah. You know, what, what can we say? She's literally the, the greatest female athlete of all time, and I, I think you would not be getting anyone in crosshairs if you said she was the greatest athlete in her particular sport of all time, I mean, there's, there's no argument to be had within her sport and the, the things she's done, you can't even verbalize all the accomplishments she's had. And then to still at, you know, at her age to go out and upset the number two player in the world, you know, in, on a stage where we know this, her last match is just around the corner, depending on what happens was a pretty thrilling thing to watch this week. And you know, even though she fell in the third round of the U S open, I think it just goes to show how impactful she's been on the sport that, you know, tickets are going for thousands and thousands of dollars just to see her third round match at the U S open. So even though she just, it, we just got the news that she lost her third round match. Um, I mean, Serena Williams is not just the goat this week, but she's the goat of all time in uh, women's professional tennis and arguably all professional sports. Yeah. If it tells you anything, I mean, just look at that crowd that they had in New York for the U S open. I mean, it, and it's the who's who, right. You get tiger woods there. Mike Tyson was tripping off some mushrooms or something. Uh, everybody was there to see sort of this swan song for her. And yeah, she's, she's pretty impressive. Um, maybe, you know, maybe the goat, but I guess maybe you forgot about Billie Jean King, a little, little lady named Billie Jean King. There, I think Billie Jean King has literally come out and said, no, she's the greatest woman. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. All right, let's move on to duds because we're running out of time. Uh, my dud is, it's not a person, uh, it's a thing. And it's those god-awful new Riddell Axiom helmets. Uh, I don't know if anybody's seen these. You're going to see them if you watch any college football this year. It's kind of prevalent. I saw it last week in the Wyoming-Illinois game. Um, these are the stupidest things I've ever seen. You certainly know that I'm, I'm a big stickler on uniforms, helmets. I I absolutely love the uni watch that kind of stuff is just that's right in my wheelhouse and these riddell axiom helmets are absolutely atrocious um look it, it's one of those things look good look good feel good feel good play good this is look bad feel bad and feel bad play horribly because one of the guys who was wearing it is andrew peasley who was playing at wyoming he's the quarterback at wyoming against illinois who's not by any means a powerhouse he was five of 20 for 30 yards, zero touchdowns, and an INT, with six, a 16.2 QBR. Um, that's what happens when you wear helmets like that. You look like freaking George Jetson uh, going to work. And also, shout out to George Jetson. He was born on uh, July 31st, 2022. So welcome to the world, George. But I certainly don't think that his first memory would be seeing guys wearing those stupid freaking helmets. You look like, uh, I don't know. I just, I can't stand it. It makes me uh, ridiculously angry, which I know is, ridiculous in and of itself but um we need to get rid of those new axiom helmets as soon as humanly possible yeah well i know what i'm getting you for christmas this year now um <laughs> i think my dud and i, I want to be fair to the guy because it really could have happened to anybody but uh the raven's mascot poe which is uh, honestly a great mascot name considering the Poe connection to baltimore and the ravens obviously being taken in part from his literature i mean that's a great mascot name but the guy who plays Poe or is Poe, I don't know the exact terminology, 
uh, Torres ACL this week in one of those preseason halftime events where they have, you know, a Pop Warner or a youth league football team play a bunch of mascots. And he was the ball carrier and he got tackled from behind and just tore his ACL to shreds. And, you know, it was all over social media. You see the mascot still in a costume being carted out of the stadium and just professional. You got to keep the head on. Yeah, he kept the head on. (laughs) Just imagine the the looks. Um, And, you know, this was a really tough look for the Ravens, particularly because, you know, they've had some injury history the last couple of years. And you never know, they might have needed him to take some snaps at running back. And so they lost another potential backfield option. So hopefully that doesn't speak um, to what the injury history will be like for the Ravens this season. But yeah, not a great look for uh, for Poe and the Baltimore Ravens on that regard. Not a great look. But all I can say is this, this was a revenge shot because there's been some, some, uh, some videos flying around the internet in the last week of mascots just absolutely running over Pop Warner players, just stiff arms, snot bubbling, just absolutely no regard for child life. And I think one of those Pop Warner players just, he finally had enough and he took out somebody's knee and Poe just happened to be on the other end of that. So I guess case in point, don't mess with Pop Warner football players because they're going to be the next James Harrison taking your knees out. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the lesson we can all learn from playing Pop Warner is if it's a Pop Warner football player versus a grown man in an animal costume, all bets are off. That's right. It, yeah. It, we're not even going to furry conventions, but that's a whole another story for a whole another podcast because we are here for education only, sports only, Andrew Schuster. We are the Walk-Ons podcast and it is September 2nd. Thanks for joining us. We are out.